So my name is Bruce Livesey. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I'm currently the lead investigative journalist or reporter with the National Observer, which is a online Canadian newspaper. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Your thoughts on projects, I, should, I don't want to say projects to, uh, to minimize what it is, but um, publications like the National Observer. Um, I think the first time I heard you was on uh, Jesse Brown's Canada Land. Um, your, your thoughts on independent media like this, um, and even where things are going, you know, I think uh, there's a, a sports publication that has just launched called The Athletic. Uh, that's a you know a subscription model as well. Obviously, places like um, the Globe, I think the Sun is doing it. Um, New York Times subscription models. You know, what are your thoughts on on the media moving forward? Well, we've had a cataclysmic change and mostly a cataclysmic catastrophe <laughs> in the media. Yeah in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, and it's all been rendered by the Internet. Mm -hmm. And basically, you, you've gone from a model, an economic model, where media outlets survived on advertising from which they put in their newspapers or the magazines or on radio or on television in between the content. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the, what sustained all these various different media forums. And the Internet comes along and wipes that out, or has been wiping it out, eating away at it. Mm -hmm. So just as a small example, um, in the newspaper industry, uh, classified advertising was very important for their, yes. for their existence. Craigslist comes along overnight, yep. destroys a very lucrative part of the newspaper industry. Um, as the Internet, you know, now you see video online, you don't need to watch television anymore. Mm -hmm. and so increasingly people don't watch TV the way they used to. So the, the Internet has, in short, atomized, crushed, destroyed the economic engine of the traditional mainstream media. And that is ongoing, has not stopped, and nobody's to this day really figured out what to do about it. Hmm. In uh, at the same time, the internet has allowed cheap alternative medium to emerge because yeah. you don't have to produce a newspaper anymore, a printed mm -hmm. product. You don't have to produce a magazine. You just put up a website, yeah. and if you've got good content, people will come to you. And so. You know, while you've seen the demise of the mainstream media, you've seen the emergence of alternative media. And mm -hmm. the National Observer, which I work for, is part of that new wave of alternative media. Um, I was speaking with, I don't know if you know this individual. He works for the Toronto Star, uh, Morgan Campbell. No. He writes for the Star, writes about uh, sports and business, um, usually the relationship between the two. Um, and him and I were speaking once here, and he said what... The, the main reason was is that newspapers, even though they had advertising, they still charged us, whether it was a quarter, 50 cents a buck, for the newspaper. Um, as soon as they went online, it was, free, it was quote unquote free. 
right? You as a user could go on and you could read that same newspaper that would come to your door for five bucks a week or whatever it was um, and get it now for free. I still have this argument with my wife to this day. You know, why are you bringing home the newspaper? Everything is, is, is online. And what Morgan said is that's the re- that's As soon as you let the genie out of the bag or out of the box, it's hard to bring it back in and, and start all over. Um, do you think that putting up paywalls is a, is a solution to the survival of, and to me, I think the most important thing is not, you know, the comics here or there, but is, is the stuff that you do, the, the investigative stuff, the stuff that takes months to, to produce and then write. So, uh, so first off, the, the newspaper industry made a huge mistake going back 10-plus years ago mm-hmm. when they began to create their own websites and, as you say, began to put their own content up for free because it was undermining the very product that they were trying to sell. They were undervaluing it. Yeah. So that was mistake one. Um, the second assumption was that as advertising went from a paper for you know in in a paper product mm-hmm. to online that uh newspapers and magazines would be okay that that the it's because the ad moved from a paper product to online you still had the ad you still had the revenue sure that turned out not to be true for two reasons one was that the value of the ad online is much less so mm-hmm. if you're paying a hundred dollars to put an ad in a newspaper you're pretty much paying like $10 for it when you put it online. So suddenly the value of the ad is less. The second problem was Google and Facebook yeah. have, are, are like these monsters <laughs> that are eating up at all the advertising dollars. That's true. So they have these algorithms whereby, you know, and advertisers now know this, they don't care if you're reading the investigative journalism of myself or other journalists, mm-hmm. or you're watching a kitty video or watching your Facebook friend's pictures. They yeah. don't care. As long as their your eyeball is on their ad, that's all they care about. So Facebook and Google have, in effect, swallowed up a lot of the online advertising. So that's left the traditional media in a terrible fix. Hmm. And that means they have less money to pay people like me to, as you say, spend weeks or months investigating things. Yeah. Because they, they don't have, you know, they need content now. Mm-hmm. And, and the other reality of the Internet, and I've seen this with The Observer, is there's relentless pressure for, you know, clickbait, for, yeah. you know, getting people to look at you and getting views and, you know, and getting new stuff up immediately because it's such a, you know, there's so much competition online. So there's a, there, you know, and that, that works against spending the time to actually go and do journalism. Mm-hmm. Where does that leave investigative journalism, the, the specific stuff that you do? Do you find, I don't know if you have kids or not, um, but what would you tell my 11-year-old? If, if, he, if he said, if I said, you, you know, Cosmo, you, know, you need to go speak to Bruce. He does this investigative journalism that you're really, really excited about. Um, you know, what would you tell him? Well, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a bad time to be a journalist, young or old. It's worse for the young. I mean, I it, because 
I have 30 plus years of experience. I can do television, radio, magazine, newspapers, mm. and um, uh, you know, and I, I I write fast. I'm you know I'm, I'm I, you know I'm I'm productive. Yeah. So um, guys like me, which are kind of rare, I manage to still get work. Yeah. And actually, I have too much work. I have no shortage of work. Wow. I have a lot of work. Uh, it's killing me slowly. But you're not complaining about it. So I'm not complaining. Yeah. But on the other hand, for younger journalists, it's a problem because um, the traditional venues, going to the CBC or the Toronto Star or the Globe, or, or starting with your local newspaper, your daily, you know, your, your daily newspaper or the regional papers, the reality is, is those jobs, which were never easy to get, in the beginning, you know, even then during the the halcyon days of the newspaper industry yeah. or the media, um, are much scarcer now. And there's a good chance you're going to get laid off. I mean, post the post media newspaper chain, every quarter they're announcing new layoffs, and the papers are getting thinner and smaller, and there's no new reorganizations, which is all about trying to produce newspapers with fewer people. Mm-hmm. So, but. On the other hand, there are at the same time exciting alternative outlets. Yeah. And The Observer and Vice and BuzzFeed and, uh, you know, the Tai and, and numerous other outlets which mm-hmm. didn't exist years ago have emerged. And, you know, they are all struggling with their various individual issues of trying to survive and trying to find audiences and all that. But, you know, looking at Vice as an example, I mean, Vice went from, from an obscure Montreal, kind of a sophomoric magazine that wrote reviews on porn to... Is that what they started out as? <laughs> well, that was one of the things <laughs> that they used to That was one of the do. things. <laughs> I used to enjoy reading it because I thought, hey, here's a... Here's a magazine that actually writes reviews of porn. You know, who does that? Wow. <laughs> but but it was a great magazine in its early days, and then it's turned into this massive, you know, now I think it's valued at a couple billion dollars empire. Wow. And they've, you know, they've they've gone huge into television. They have hired a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, they've expanded dramatically. They have deals with uh, Disney and News Corp and Rogers. That's and, right. You yeah. know, they're... Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's going to have a happy end and Vice has had all sorts of issues. But on the other hand, it didn't really exist as a media organization, you know, uh, that that long ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, BuzzFeed, I think BuzzFeed in particular has had a lot of success. They've been very smart where they have have built audience using basically fluff and the trivial. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, got up to a certain position of revenue and income and then went off and hired a lot of some of the best journalists Able in the world. Able to invest, yeah. And now we're doing some of the best investigative journalism around. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then the other thing that's interesting, just as an aside, is like, you know, there's this assumption that long-form journalism and long-form investigative reporting, you know, oh, it's too long, nobody's going to read it. But what what we've discovered the National Observer, what the Globe and Mail has exper- seen as well, other publications have seen, is that long, well-written pieces are actually popular. Mm-hmm. People like to read them. Yeah. And um, people 
are drawn to quality. I think so. And if you produce a quality product, they'll pay for it. And so, to get back to something you mentioned earlier, paywalls are a necessity, you know, because it is actually, in many ways, the only way to pay for content now. If you want to really, you want the New York Times to survive and investigate what Donald Trump is up to, you want the Globe and Mail to survive and the Toronto Star and and the National Observer, you need to pay for it. And and that's, people are coming around, I think, are coming around to that. Hmm. Um, your thoughts on, and I guess it started with Trump, but, you know, your thoughts on this whole idea now about fake news. Um, you know, started off with being, it was actually fake stories that were not true, that were obviously not true. I shouldn't say obviously, but were just fabricated to now fake news being whoever the subject is um, as if they don't agree with something, their point of view, their, their, their political slant, um, it's called fake news. Is is there a danger in? Um, is there a danger in that? To you know, some people say there's a there's a democratic need or, or democracy needs a, a free and impartial media. Um, is there a danger in our leadership calling stories that they don't agree with as fake news? Uh, this is. <laughs> Bizarrely, this is actually kind of a complicated subject. So um, what we saw last year in the U.S. presidential election was the emergence of websites that were producing what were clear fabrications. Like there's just some guy sitting at a computer just making shit up, basically. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and a lot of it was, you know, some of it's been connected to Russia, and some of it's been connected to Trump and the alt right and whatnot, and and it was all designed to push voters in certain ways, you know, conspiracy theories, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And and we know that 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 stuff existed, and and that 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 term, the phrase fake news. The complication has been is that. At this moment, the mainstream media, the media, the traditional media, sure. is held in the lowest esteem it has probably ever been held in. And it's held in, in low esteem by the general population for good reason. Because okay. the mainstream media, the corporate media, has spent decades focusing on all the wrong things that are important to people in many respects, with some exceptions. Mm-hmm. Of and here's you know the most glaring example of this was the 2003 um, invasion of Iraq, when the Bush administration mm-hmm. wanted to go to war, invade Iraq, had no cause to go to Iraq, invented a cause which were the the non-existent weapons of mass destruction, and managed to persuade very august publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the networks that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. It was complete fiction. It was an easily proved fiction if they had bothered to do their homework. Hmm. And it was that sort of event where here you had the mainstream media publishing on the front page of the New York Times fake news, you know, information that was completely false, that, that Hussein had you know, this vast arsenal of, you know, of weapons of mass destruction. 
So, and, and that's just one example of many examples where you could point to the mainstream media um, falling down on the job. You could go just a few years later to the, the credit crisis, the, the, mm -hmm. the global collapse of the, of the economy. Well, how many newspapers and magazines in the business world were investigating what was going on in the interesting in the in the subprime mortgage market what the banks were doing well they weren't you know because they don't have the in intellect and the capacity and the critical capabilities right so you could I could go on and on there are there are also the problems of what they omit what they do not cover mm -hmm. their inherent biases right they're you know the the they do not they ignore the plight of people of color you know so in, in a city like Toronto where the African Canadian population is constantly harassed by the police which has been going on for decades and you know carding and all of this mm -hmm. with the exception of maybe the Toronto Star you know there's been over again decades ignoring the plight and the, this this chronic constant issue mm -hmm. so there's there's issues with the media of what they don't don't investigate. You know, they don't investigate the the oil industry over issues of climate change. They don't investigate some of the richest families in Canada and their various sins, etc., etc., etc. So, part of the problem now is when the mainstream media is saying we have an issue with fake news. It's sort of like the 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 um, uh, hmm. you know crying wolf. Right, it's the phenomena of the. It's those who have blood on their hands, you know, um, complaining about a phenomenon which is indeed dangerous, but they too are don't have a lot of credibility anymore. Yeah. So that's why it's a kind of a the fake news issue, while alarming, is also a problem because the mainstream media is viewed with great skepticism now and it's all entirely brought upon themselves because they've constantly shamed themselves with bad reporting is there a solution well if you look i mean one of the experiences i've seen in my career is if you're publicly funded or you're not funded, if you have a not-for-profit model okay. of funding journalism, so whether you work for, if you work for the CBC, I mean, the CBC is a bit more complicated, but, but generally if you, when I worked at the CBC, the latitude I had to do certain sorts of stories mm -hmm. was tremendous compared to if I worked for, right, for the Global Mail or right for, you know, worked for Global TV and others. And why is that? Because of corporate advertising. Okay. One depends on advertising. Mm -hmm. Advertising is at the same time it sustains the media, but it's also the cancer of the media because it means, I mean, we are a society dominated by large corporations. And if those corporations are funding your media, the media doesn't report on what those corporations are doing. Hmm. They don't. They don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. It's an inherent conflict of interest. You know, so one of the reasons the business press does not write critically about what Bay Street does and all the banking industry does is because they get a lot of advertising from the big banks and the brokerage firms and the hedge funds and all of that. Hmm. But it's true in, you know, writing, if you want to write critically about the auto industry or any industry, they all advertise, yeah. right? 
Why doesn't the, me the media devote more critical coverage about the oil industry on the issues of climate change? We are in a climate change crisis. Last year was the hottest year on record. Yeah. The last decade was the hottest in history. We are heading, we're already seeing the, the cataclysmic effects of climate change. Where is all the media coverage of, of the sins of the oil industry? Their funding of climate change denial groups. You know, the Koch brothers, on and on, the Exxon Mobiles, and all their efforts to undermine the efforts to curb the, um, the burning of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. In the media, none of that, those, the stories aren't being done because they get massive amounts of advertising from, you know, the mainstream, from the oil industry. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you ask somebody in the oil business, and they would say it's, it's opposite. There's too much... Negative coverage. It's it's all unbalanced. Of course, they're going to say that. <laughs> but but that's an industry. If 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 you believe climate change science, it's an industry that has to be wound down. So of course they're going to say, you know, it's too critical. Well, yeah, it should be critical. You guys should be <laughs> out of business. It's like the tobacco industry saying there are too many stories, negative stories about tobacco. You know, smoking because it kills people. Yeah, but it does kill people. You know, and hence people should stop smoking. Hmm. Right? You know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's the, the advertising is a problem because it limits the scope of what stories you can do. I mean, I did a hmm. series of stories last year about the Irving family, and the Irvings are the... The Maritimes, right? That's right. They're yeah. the fourth or richest, fam richest family in Canada. They control, they own an entire province, you know, for all intents and purposes. But they also own the media, they also in own those provinces. in those provinces. They also own all the all you know all the daily newspapers in in New Brunswick and most of the community newspapers. So here you have a situation where you have a dominant corporate group, which you know runs forestry, shipbuilding, oil, you know, oh wow, transportation. It's the more than just fries. Oh yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's the McCain's. Oh, okay, you know. <laughs> Irving's, that's right. Okay. The Irving's, mm -hmm. and, and they also own the media, which doesn't, of course, cover the Irving Empire. Wow. And that, that's a microcosm of what is sort of happening in the rest of the country. You know, the post-media newspaper chain, which is, by the way, controlled by you know, American hedge funds and some other shady Canadian investment funds. You know, they are, are run... They made a pact, they made a deal with the oil industry a few years ago with a Canadian, it's called the Canadian Petroleum Producers Association, whereby they would run favorable stories in their newspaper really? about the oil industry. Hmm. At the same time, the post-media newspaper chain employs the most columnists who deny that climate change is occurring. You know, so they've made this Faustian bargain with this very powerful industry that we're going to run just favorable stories about you guys. Hmm. Meanwhile, employing a bunch of doofuses who don't <laughs> believe that climate change actually exists. Hmm. Well, that's not an accident. You know, that, that, and that sort of arrangement is very pernicious. Huh. And it's one of the reasons that the post-media <laughs> newspaper empire, among its reasons, it's in, it's in tremendous decline is that they produce shitty, crappy newspapers. And, and now they want uh, government handouts. Uh, yes, so they, so they say. Yeah, you know. that's really interesting. 
you, you mentioned earlier that you've you've been in media for is it thirty since since the eighties. Since the eighties, I graduated from journalism school in nineteen eighty five, and I've been working ever since. Which uh, which school did you go to? I went to Ryerson. Ryerson, which still has that journalism program, from yeah. what I understand. Um, do you remember your first big story? I mean, in the main, like in the non-newspaper, in the non-student newspaper. Sure, world. Or, or either or. Um, God. Maybe the first one you said, "Yes, I've arrived." Or. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only thing I, 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 I when I worked, I, we're talking about the Irvings. I spent a couple of summers working for the the Fredericton Daily Gleaner because I, I grew up in mostly in Fredericton, in New Brunswick, and I and. I got hired one summer to work as a summer student, and I came. and As it turned out, there were these sort of the New Brunswick government was doing these sort of big cuts to education at the time, and uh, I so I was writing writing a series of front page stories. Okay, I just arrived at the paper on the cuts and the impacts of the cuts, and then I was going to like parent rallies where they're complaining about the cuts and they'd be quoting information from my articles. Oh wow. I remember thinking that was pretty cool. You know, that was nice. like that was a nice and it and and it had an impact because the government sort of had to back off on a lot of these cuts, you know, mm. because they were um so unpopular. Wow. So that was one of my first positive experiences. But a few a few months later I was sent to cover. Um, this is going back to this is what, you know, this is like nineteen eighty, early eighties, and and in New Brunswick um, uh, at that time there was a uh, anti-francophone sentiment among some elements of the anglophone community. Okay, I mean it was just old old-fashioned bigotry basically, and there was a former city councilor in Fredericton who who. It started this group, which is like the English-speaking association of New Brunswick, right? And he would give he would give these he, again he would do these sort of talks or rallies at like at the local high school, where he would basically make he would do what Donald Trump is doing. Hmm. He would just make up shit. Wow. About you know how if you're an Anglophone, and this is a problem. This is dominated by Anglophones overwhelmingly were somehow being discriminated against if they couldn't speak French. Oh, my goodness. It was just, it was nonsense. So I, I was sent as a journalist to cover this, this doofus's, uh, one of his <laughs> talks. And, and sort of, you know, again, this is one of the problems of journalism. You have to kind of write down what people say and report it as if it's, you know. And afterwards, I went to my editor and I said, you know, I think this guy is full of shit. I don't think, he, everything he says is crap. I need to, will you let me go off and research a story to take things he said and actually go and okay. research them. Yeah. So you're going to like fact check now. So the editor said, yeah, sure. He wasn't really paying attention. He said, go <laughs> ahead. So I went off and I researched. I took this guy's statements and I went off and re did real research. And I wrote this story saying basically everything this guy says is a lie. And that story kind of snuck its way into the paper. Like it buried, it got into the paper. And the editors, the bosses of the paper were livid at me. Oh. They were happy to publish the bigoted ravings of this idiot. But they were very unhappy that one of the reporters went off and pointed out that he was lying. That everything he said was, was, was 
inaccurate. Wow. So that was so I so I went from being hey, you're hot shit because I was doing these great stories but education cuts to I was in the, you know, I was in the um in their bad books because I had embarrassed or pointed out that one of their little toys was a, was a liar, basically. And that was the last time you worked for them? Or? Well, I, yeah, I worked for the, them for the summer. And that I, was I went back to the university. <laughs> when I graduated, I didn't go back to New Brunswick. <laughs> and ever since then, you've had something against the powers that be in well, New Brunswick. Well, New Brunswick, yeah. I mean, New Brunswick, it's, uh, it's a very unique place and not necessarily in a good way. It's, it's uh, Someone said to me, it's corporatism run amok. You know, it's the perfect oligarchy. You don't hear about it, though, like here in, you know. I know. The entire region, province, controlled by one family. Not a a very nice family. That's like a TV show. Oh, yeah. It could be. It's uh, it's Dallas, you know. Yeah. (laughs) It's the show Dallas. Wow. Or, or if we bring it to this time, I'm, I'm thinking like House of Cards or something. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really, it's really, really strange. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I first became aware of, of you, and I, I may have read or seen a, a various things that you had done, um, but when Kevin O'Leary threw his hat in the ring, right. um, you uh, wrote a story shortly thereafter um, sort of about his claimed to be a very successful and very accomplished uh, business person. Um, and you wrote a piece that sort of, you know, sort of like you, you did in, you know, back in your university days, sort of pointed out, here are the things he's saying, and here's actually what happened. Right. Um, w- w- your thoughts on Kevin O'Leary as potentially the next uh, leader of the Conservative Party? Well, O'Leary's interesting, as is Donald Trump, because, <laughs> um, and you could go back to, I mean, here, I'm really good digressing. Um, you could go back to actually, and people often use Hitler as one of the, you know, for any excuse to t- have talk about something, but Ron Rosenbaum, who's an American journalist, did a book called Explaining Hitler. When he was researching it, he came across the journalism of a newspaper in Munich. It was a liberal newspaper back in the 20s and early 30s, hmm. who wrote relentless articles about the sins and crimes of Hitler and the, the uh, of the Nazi party prior to him coming to power. Okay. When Hitler came to power, he immediately shut the newspaper down. And one of the things that struck me about reading, Rosenbaum wrote about this history of this newspaper um, years ago, but we, one of the things that struck me was that journalism, you can expose the many sins of someone a business person, blah, 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 and people <laughs> will not care. Or they will look away because they are like, you know, and, and Trump and O'Leary fit this category. They are both horrible businessmen. Hmm. Like, if you look at their track record, they have lost people's money mm-hmm. relentlessly. They have broken laws they have you know they they've gone bankrupt i mean well trump's gone bankrupt numerous times and yet people have this perception mm-hmm. uh, largely because of the medium of television that they are successful business people mm-hmm. you know because they both ended up on tv in different capacities yeah. you know, on reality tv shows or you know in the case of o'leary 
on you know as a as a co-host of a talk show yeah and, and or on dragon's den mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and nobody bothers to look at their past and and so what happened with O'Leary is back in t- 2000, uh, t- uh, 2012, um, I convinced the Globe and Mail, the RB magazine, and me and Tim Kalatz, who is a journalist who still works at the Globe, we, we did this long piece about, very critical piece on O'Leary's business, you know, history. Back then, eh? Yeah. So that was 2012. That story lives on the web and continues to do well because I'm sure, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's always coming back. And then when then then sure enough, you get last, paid per click now. No, I no? don't. So <laughs> last year when it looked like O'Leary, well, it started off when O'Leary criticized Notley, um, Rachel Notley, the current premier of Alberta. Yeah, and said that she should resign and she would be pay a her disaster. a million dollars. He would yeah, pay somebody yeah, a million dollars right. or something. Yeah. And this just pissed me off. It's like this man is such a terrible businessman that he, you know the, and so I did two stories. I did one. I just sort of re, I, I took the material from I did for the Globe and I sort of updated it and and reworked it. But when I but after that piece came out, um, I got a call from a guy who said you should look into O'Leary's history in the because. O'Leary had made him his name during the 1990s running an, an educational software company. I remember, yeah. Called The Learning Company, which he sold to Mattel and which immediately crashed and burned and almost destroyed Mattel because it was a complete turkey. He had taken a decent company and turned it into a complete um, time bomb. And... Um, so this guy said you should look more closely at whether or not O'Leary wiped out an entire industry single-handedly. So I wrote a second story saying that went back and researched O'Leary's time in the 1990s up mm-hmm. until he sells the learning company to, to Mattel, which basically makes the argument that he wiped out the educational software industry of the 1990s because of his disastrous management of, of TLC. Um, so, he, so, And the point being is he has no business giving Rachel Notley advice about how to you know, manage the oil pads given that the guy has once destroyed an entire industry. <laughs> yeah. um, but, and those stories have done well ever since. But again, what's interesting to me is that he is running, and at some polls at times is leading in the leadership of the Conservative nuts. Party, and he's a terrible businessman. He's a complete fraud, and yeah. yet nobody seems to give a shit. I'm of the opinion that just because you're a good business, assuming that someone's a good business person, doesn't mean you're fit to actually run for public office. Because I'm of the belief that you, whether you're running a city, a province, or a country... Um, the goal is not to make profit as it is in the, in the corporate sector. You know, the, but, you, but you can be a a, a good example is um, is Bloomberg. You know, who is a very successful businessman. Fair enough. He was a good mayor. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the best mayor, but he was a good mayor. Yeah. Um, you know, you can be. Uh, I I think the thing is that. Any really good academic on business, people who really understand how, was the, the history of successful companies, mm-hmm. is that the things that make companies successful are usually not the caricatures that end up on television. 
And Fair Kevin enough. O'Leary and Donald Trump are caricatures yes. of the worst aspects of being a businessman. They think it's the best aspects, but it's not. Yeah. You know, you know, building a company takes, you know, patience. You have to work well with people. You have to build good products. You have to focus on quality. You, you know, you have to do. You can't lie. You can't cheat. You can't mm-hmm. steal. You know, and and chances are, there's a good chance you'll build a good company. Well, those are fine in governance too, you know. The problem is that guys like Trump and O'Leary didn't were terrible businessmen. They yeah. destroyed their companies. They did unethical things, you know. They they did took terribly dumb risks, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, you know, in many ways, and this again gets back to what we were talking about earlier. The problem with the media is it constantly disgraces itself because, and television is the worst because. You can be good on television, and Kevin O'Leary is classic for this. He ends up on TV because he's good on TV. The people, the executives that put him on TV didn't give a shit whether he had a good business track record or not. They assumed he knew what he was talking about because he they don't know shit about business. He would give them a bunch of gobbledygook. They think, well, this guy knows something about business. But more importantly, he's good TV. He's, he's good entertaining. Ratings. He's good at rating. <laughs> he's like, give us ratings. That's the only thing that matters in TV. Yeah. So O'Leary and guys like Trump end up on TV because they, you know, they have the the right personalities that trans translate well on television. But that doesn't mean they're good. Business people, and that doesn't mean they should be governing countries. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the trouble we're in is that, you know, you know people have lost. You know, and this is get back to the fake news things. They've lost the capacity to understand what is reality and what is not reality. The majority of people, I agree with you, and there's something scary. That, all it takes is somebody who's a pop star. You know. To, to run and it's like well if they've got control of you know whether it's millions of followers on Twitter or Instagram or they've got their own TV show um, it's like well yeah people are going to listen to them unfortunately yeah. you know and think that they know what they're talking about you talked about um, sources you know your source that told you to look into Kevin O'Leary um, there's been recent and forgive me for not knowing the exact case but there's been a, a recent case that that uh, for some reason, uh, is coming to my head about uh, one of the courts asking a reporter that he must give um, his sources up, or he must um, something about this person being the Taliban or something like that. It's a vice case. Vice case, yeah. yeah. Um, journalist being asked by the RCMP. Yeah. To hand uh, over his sources. Is is there? That sounds dangerous to me in terms of. To the media, it sounds like this is how stories get reported. This is how you guys find out things and are able to educate uh, the public about what's going on. Um, do you have an opinion either way in terms of the value of having sources kept confidential and, and the uh, the police state or the courts staying out of that? Well, the assumption, journalists have the assumption that if you have sources and who tell you things, um, that they, look, there's sources who either on the record or off the record. Fair enough, yeah, yeah. So, so if they're off the record, yeah, it, it can depend on the circumstances. Um, I mean, generally, uh, so... I, 
generally journalists don't want to put people off the record. They want everybody on the record. So then it's very open. Yes. Everybody understands who's saying what. Yes. Okay, so that's the first thing is you don't want to use off the record sources. Yeah. But there are circumstances where in order to get a story out, you may might have to rely on on um off the record sources. And and there you have to be very careful mm-hmm. because um uh I mean, generally, it's understood that if there's a lawsuit or some sort of legal action against you over a story, that you would not reveal those sources, and that's you know that is the sort of the code, the journalistic code. Um, and uh, you know, most journalists stick to that. Um, I don't see. There's more cases where the government's going after journalists. This is this is not a new issue. Mm-hmm. This has gone on for decades. There's always been the odd case that comes up where the, the government or a company or someone who's you know who launches a legal action wants to know the original source. Yeah, this is not a new issue. I don't know whether it's worse now or than it is before. Okay, um, it's hard. To, it's really I, I really don't know. Yeah, I don't know whether there's been any studies on that. I mean, just generally the rule of thumb is that that. Um, you know, if people say it's off the record, you keep it off the record, and their name never shows up in the record anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, but you use that very, use it, yeah, very carefully. Like I would never say, like I, I've stuck, stayed away from doing stories saying, you know, so and so committed a crime based on an anonymous source. Yeah, I would just never do. You just that. drop that story. Well, yeah, because it's like it's not, you know, it's not really fair to the person you're accusing. Okay. If you find an anonymous source but a bunch of other evidence, then sure. You okay. say, well, according to this, according to this, and you know, a source told us yeah. it would be one of three or four sources, but the other sources are clearly identified, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. But basing an entire story on an anonymous source, accusing someone of a serious crime, which, again, has been done yeah. you know, and gets done occasionally, is not something I would be, feel comfortable doing generally. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I know I don't have too much time left with you. I know you're busy. You're on deadline. Yes. Um, you want to tell me the story you're writing on? Sure. It's a story about uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which was okay. briefly the largest company in Canada. Oh, I didn't know that. It was the market capitalization bigger than the Royal Bank of Canada, briefly, in the summer of 2015. Wow. And it, it's collapsed spectacularly since then and is now accused of running uh, a massive internal fraud, a fraudulent scheme to rip off the U.S. health insurance system. So I'm doing a story about the rise and fall of Valiant for the Globe and Mail's report in Business Magazine. That'll be an interesting read. It is. It's a very, it's, a, it's, it's capitalism gone run amok. Run amok. Yeah. Uh, two things out quickly. Um, how does it feel not to be getting sued anymore by Conrad Black? <laughs> well, there's good and bad. The good is it's the suit is over. Yeah. The, the bad is that it was a certain amount of notoriety <laughs> having been sued by Conrad Black. Not that I spent a lot of time telling people I got sued by Conrad Black, but now and then it would come up. It's very good. It's a big victory for us. Um, we were never. I was never worried. I don't know how much Random House was worried, but I was never worried we would ever win the suit or mm-hmm. any of that. I mean, we were never going to win, lose the suit. A because I didn't libel them. I didn't libel them and defame them, even though he thinks so. Um, 
but the you know we, it was a solid we had you know we were solid in terms of the research that was based on thieves of bay street it was a book i wrote called thieves of bay street which came out in 2012 and he sued us for like days after 45 days after getting out of prison um uh, the the thing that I found galling mm-hmm. about this case was not the lawsuit. The thing I found galling was how a, a, a man convicted of robbing his own company, who's basically his own company fires him for robbing his own company. <laughs> he has by then given up his Canadian citizenship, a country he has spent much of his adult life pissing on as a, as a country full of, you know, welfare-loving mediocrities. Mm-hmm. And he's immediately welcomed, like a non-Canadian convicted felon, welcomed back into the bosom of the Canadian establishment. And my lawsuit, which cost Random House a lot of money to defend, wow. vanishes from the media, is, is like never discussed in the media. Not at all. Not at all. It was just find, going through your Twitter was, feed that I go, oh, you're being sued. I didn't know that. There was a uh, National Post article about it when it first was launched. Uh, Andrew Mitrovica, who's a columnist for a couple of alternative news sites, wrote a few pieces. He wrote a piece for Huffington Post. Bob Hepburn wrote something for The Star. Uh, and that was it. And and there was just like no no one said this non-Canadian convicted felon you know the man who's who's been the bane of journalists for decades. He's suing a, a, the most respected publishing company in Canada, his own publishing company, and, and you know, and this was clearly a, a lawsuit designed to shut people up and you know to criticize him. And there was no huh. no coverage about it. And is it again going back to biting the hand that feeds you? They didn't want to. Ruffle feathers. Uh, that's an, another long. I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's. You could say in the mainstream media, in particular, it is in and in Canada and also generally there mm-hmm. we have a reverence for the rich and the establishment, which is peculiar and unwarranted, and yet, you know, persists mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I think Black, you know, f- fell happily into that, you know, warm space when he got back where he was not going to be criticized again. Hmm. I mean, you had Margaret Wente of the Globe and Mail and Margaret Atwood and Rex, what's his name? Rex, Rex Her- Murphy. Rex Murphy, all yeah. welcoming him back. And the guy's not a Canadian anymore. Huh. You know, he's, he's, who gives up their Canadian citizenship to sit in the British House of Lords? And then, like, you know, he's not a Canadian, and he's a convicted felon. You know, no, if you were a poor person of color who had given mm. up your Canadian citizenship, gone to jail in the United States, and then wanted to come back to Canada, do you think the Canadian government would say, sure, come on back? You know, no way. Who yeah. are you? <laughs> <That's> exactly. <laughs> wow. Um, we're sending you back to Mexico or to, uh, you know, wherever. Inside the Koch brothers' war on climate science. Yes. Was this the... Um, the 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 TV special that was supposed to run on Global. So yeah, I, I got fi- right? I got fired from Global in uh, early two thousand fifteen for doing a story about the the Koch brothers, who are the seventh richest people in the United States, who own a company called Koch Industries. 
which is a big oil refining company and a company that made its fortune refining Canadian oil. And they have also spent many years funding this vast political, right-wing political network in the United States. And part of their funding has been to groups and, and scientists who deny climate change is a problem. And they also control one to two million acres of the Alberta tar sands. So I think I knew that, yes. So I did a story for Global all about those guys. They, somewhere high in the echelon of Global, freaked out about this, pulled the story. They didn't it, know you were doing this? or Well, my boss obviously knew, yeah. and his, her boss knew, but further up the food chain they didn't know. Ah, okay. And when it got out that we were doing this, I think somebody in advertising said, this is going to affect our advertising. Jeez. And, uh, you always hear that there's a wall. Oh, no, there's no walls. So they pulled the story, huh. and then when Jesse Brown did a story about the disappearance of my story, and they made, he made Global look bad, they then canned me. So then I got a call from an online television network in Baltimore called The Real News Network, and they yes. wanted to do the story, but they didn't have any money, so we had to go crowdfund it. Okay. And that took a long time. So fast forward to last summer, I finally we had the money to go film what turned out to be a, a different story. It was about the Koch brothers, but it was a slightly different. It was less. It, was, it wasn't focused on Canada. Oh, okay. It was focused on sure, makes more sense. on the, sa- the states. Yeah. And the happy thing that happened is Emma Thompson, you know, the Oscar-winning actress mm-hmm. and screenwriter, heard about it and agreed to voice it. Nice. So she has did the voiceover, and, yeah. and we got it all together and went up on uh, just before the U.S. election. So and it's, uh, it's you know you can watch it online. On Vimeo, I think on is Vimeo. yeah. I just saw that uh, last night, yeah. and so I've bookmarked that. So. Um, and finally, congratulations! You won some awards recently. Uh, the Copa mean? Awards or the COP? Oh yes, yes, the National Observer. There's so many awards you're winning that you forgot. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Canadian Online Publications or Publishers Association. Was, yeah. was there a story that you won for? No, we we well we I won for so the the Observer did very well. We won I think three or four awards. Wow. And one, I was listed in one of the awards for news coverage or something, sort of a package. Okay, okay. Um, so yeah, but that was a, that was a good night for the Observer. You know. Are there any journalists, young journalists, today in Canada that we should be paying attention to that are doing good work? Um, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that, that you want to tell us about that you know of. Well, there's a journalist, ironically, who's a friend of mine at the um, uh, Financial Post, uh, Sean Craig, who does excellent stuff. Um, He's a big talent. Uh, Mike D'Souza, who's one of the journalists at the at the Observer, he came out of Post Media, and and he's a big talent and a a crackerjack reporter. you know the CBC has some good people. I, I've uh, I know some, you know, a few reporters there. Again, younger guys, mm-hmm. younger people who are good. Uh, yeah, I mean, but uh, you know, generally you don't get much of a name until you spend a bit more time in Fair the enough. business. Fair enough. You have a bit more of a of a legacy, perhaps. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much for spending some time here. My pleasure. All right, and uh, look forward to reading your. Your your piece on Valiant. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care.